You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Today's guest is Lynn Chen. Lynn is an actor, filmmaker, writer, and activist who has lived experience with binge eating disorder. Lynn has had roles in movies such as Saving Face and I Will Make You Mine. She has also had reoccurring roles on TV shows such as Grey's Anatomy, Shameless, and All My Children. In this episode, we talk about Lynn's eating disorder story and how her life challenges and experiences have taught her the importance of treating herself with unapologetic kindness and navigating the world with more self-trust. If you want to learn more about the gifts that recovery can offer you, I highly recommend listening to this episode. I know you are going to love hearing all about Lynn's story. Hi, Lynn. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show. (laughs) I wanted to let you know that you're the first actress, director, writer, blogger we've had on the show. We usually have a lot of dietitians, so I'm so excited to be switching things up today. Well, thank you. What an honor. Oh, well, it's an honor that you're here for all of us. I'm excited to kind of expand our horizon on stories we can share, and I think yours is really an important one. And I guess to start, I'm really curious to learn about you and how exactly your eating disorder story began. So I feel like my eating disorder, which is, I should say, binge eating disorder. I say is because I feel like it's always going to be a part of me, even if I haven't actually been struggling with it for well over a decade now. It's been almost 15 years now. But I still feel like it lies in me, dormant. And definitely it was something I struggled with a lot when I was very young, but I didn't know that that's what it was. I didn't know that binge eating was an issue. I just thought that it was overindulging. You know, it was something I did on a regular basis from a very young age, but it wasn't something that I felt guilty about or really thought was a problem. It was just how I dealt with my emotions. So when I was young and I felt sad or anxious or happy or any emotion really that I didn't know how to deal with it, I would turn to the cupboards and the cupboard was my best friend. And I just loved, I loved exploring foods. I grew up in a household where my parents were first generation, were immigrants, so I was first generation. So for me, discovering foods was a way of discovering, quote unquote, American culture. Like Mm -hmm. It was like my own sort of education. Like I was educating myself because, you know, my parents would have lots of Chinese snacks in the cupboards And if I wanted, you know, to feel like I could fit in with my friends, I would watch commercials, you know, and see, oh, okay, Pop-Tarts, what types of sugary cereals are being, being advertised to me. And I would, you know, when we went to the grocery store, usually with my father, he would be the one who let me get whatever I wanted. So that's how, you know, when I came home, it was like, Ego waffles. And then I would sit there and just read the package, you know, like even more marketing. (laughs) I would just sit there and read the packaging and like it was my friend. And I would pour over cookbooks and just like think of ways to make me feel less 
different. Mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, like a lot of my memories about food stem from a place of wanting to belong and that sense of comfort. And I should also say that I was also extremely thin growing up. And often, I wouldn't say I was a was applauded for that, but because people definitely said it in a not so kind way, almost like you're you're too thin, you're skeletal, those sorts of things. But but in a way of like, wow, look how much she can eat and she still doesn't gain weight. Like, wow. And so it was something I grew up with and it was definitely something that was a huge part of my upbringing. But it wasn't until I went to college and I became a women's studies and music double major. But when I was studying, you know, gender theory and I, of course, ended up studying eating disorders. And I just remember at the time thinking like, just immediately like being very drawn to that subject, not knowing that I had one myself. But at the time, this was like the mid nineties. I don't think that binge eating was considered an eating disorder at the time. So we just have we just had bulimia and we had anorexia. There wasn't even orthorexia or overexercise. Like none of that was really part of the discussion. It was just sort of very black and white. And it was also very much seen as a white woman's disease or problem. And so I just always felt a little bit removed by it, but at the same time, very, very intrigued by it. Mm. And I remember when I came back from college for the first time and I had gained, you know, the typical freshman, whatever. And my family obviously made comments about that. I say obviously because they were always talking about how skinny I was. And then suddenly it was like, whoa, you're not Skeletor anymore. Like what's happening? And there was a lot of be careful. And I remember when they said that I I just got so pissed. Um, And I said to them like, you're going to give me an eating disorder. (laughs) And part of how I dealt with that frustration and anger when I was at home where I was already feeling like very out of place and wishing I was back at school, part of how I would deal with that because my parents were still very strict with me, even though I was in college, was by like stuffing my face in front of them. It was no longer something I was doing in secrecy. When I had been growing up, I had been eating in private because I didn't want my mom to be sad that I was filling up on cookies before dinner. I didn't want her to be hurt. But then, you know, it became a thing of like, oh, you're going to tell me what to do? Let me show you. Like, it was an act of defiance almost. And so then that was when I started really eating to the place of discomfort. You know, it definitely was like very uncomfortable, but I didn't really know what else to do with it. You know, it was like a thing of like, I was usually home for the holidays anyway. So there was already, you know, the whole mindset of like, well, it's the holidays and this is what we do during the holidays. So it was that, but it was also, you know, me trying to prove a point. I don't even know what that point was. And still, I did not see this as an issue or a problem. It was not until I became an actress Mm. and I was forced to look at how the way I looked determined whether I got a job or not directly correlated with what food I ate. And so that was really the first time that I went on like my first diet. And I remember because I had studied, you know, eating disorders and I knew about diet culture a little bit. And I had, I had friends in college who had anorexia and bulimia. I even mentored a camper when I was a camp counselor. I was like her safety at mm. camp. So like, I already felt like I'm very anti-diet, but I, at the same time, like had no idea how else to have the career that I wanted. And 
eat the way that I was used to eating. So that's when I first started dieting. And I would say that that began that slippery slope because I was dieting, yes, losing weight, yes, being praised, yes. But at the same time, every time that I had any strong emotion and the binger in me was lying dormant, that's when she was she was getting pissed. She was getting really pissed <laughs> off that I was that I was that I had chosen dieting. And so she would rear her ugly head on a number of occasions. And it just became more regular and regular to the point where years had been going on. And I knew it was a big problem. Mm. And I was making myself ill. And it felt so uncontrollable. And I knew what was happening was not okay. And yet I couldn't stop no matter how hard I tried and how many people I spoke to about it, how many specialists I saw. It just felt like it was completely not something that I could ever. I just remember at the time feeling like, I don't know if this is ever going to go away. It just, I feel so helpless to this. That's also when I realized like, oh, I've always had this. And that's when I really felt like it was a very dark, dark time when I was initially in the first few years of my recovery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I said, that was like a, about 15 years ago. Mm. Wow. Thank you for sharing all of that. And I want to dive into how you started recovery and what that looked like for you. But you just shared so many interesting tidbits I want to sort of follow up on. And one thing that stood out to me is the anger of the dormant binge eater. You know, it sounds like she was also a little defiant, rebellious. Have you done any processing around that anger or where that might have came from in your, you know, recovery process? Yeah, so I definitely, definitely have. <laughs> and that's that anger has definitely been something that I have learned over the years how to, I wouldn't say like stop, but definitely soothe in ways that have nothing to do with food. I'd say that that anger I know is still there, but it's just that it's been so long since I've dealt with that anger via the vehicle of food that I just have found so many other coping mechanisms that have worked for me. So, but, but yes, definitely in therapy, we've, we've always gone back and, you know, there's definitely, I won't go into it, but like definitely abuse and emotional abuse, physical abuse that had occurred at a young age. Mm. Uh, so I think that most definitely <laughs> had to do, there was a correlation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I could see how if you have that living inside of you, it's probably takes so much to learn how to cope properly and feel that emotion in a safe way, you know, express that in a safe way. So I appreciate you sharing that. So another piece of your story that you mentioned that I'm really also fascinated with is how your your need to fit in, right? Your need to almost assimilate into American culture. And you sort of found food to be that vehicle to connect into the culture when you were in that place, what were your thoughts about Taiwanese food? Was there any like pull away from that? Like being in America, were you trying to not embrace your culture that your family had at the home? You know, it's it's interesting. I don't think I ever had a moment where I was like ashamed of it, really, because I, I did enjoy the foods that my mom was making at home yeah. a lot. Like my parents really didn't allow me to have people over. So that wasn't really an issue. They were strict with me. So I didn't really go out either. You know, I didn't really have the opportunity to be socializing with friends. So they did let me have a babysitter. (laughs) And (laughs) she was like such a, like, she didn't really like, you know, she was like a, (laughs) 
a mom who like made grilled cheese on Wonder Bread and served them on paper plates. And they were like very greasy as she handed them to me with a bowl of SpaghettiOs. That's what she gave me. And that to me was like her form of like, she's taking care of me. And I just felt like, wow, like the way I saw her interact with her own kids was the way I longed for my mom to interact with me. And this is not saying that this is like indicative of all Chinese and Taiwanese American families or Asian American families, but certainly there, I have found it to be a common thread that very little personal and real deep discussions happen within the family. It's very commonly like, are you hungry? What did you get on your test? And that's basically it. Like the end, (laughs) you got an A and you're not hungry. My job here is done, you know? (laughs) Whereas like I was watching like my babysitter, like ask real questions, like, and then what happened at school? And then what did your teacher say? And, you know, like, and this was all happening over the SpaghettiOs and, and and everything. And it just, to me was like, oh, this is like those commercials. This is like, you know, when I watch TV and like, they're showing me the spaghetti commercial. Like this is, this is what it is. And when I was reading Ramona books growing up, you know, one of the, what was Ramona the past, Ramona the, and her father, Ramona. Like I just remembered all of those foods and all of those things very vividly. And also when, you know, I went, to McDonald's or to Charlie Brown's or whatever chain restaurant my parents felt comfortable taking us to that wasn't a Chinese restaurant. I always felt like I was the ambassador, you know, for my parents being like, this is a salad bar. That's potato salad. That's called mayonnaise. These are peas. Like they come from a can. And like, they were just like, what is this? You know, like, so it was like, that was my way of bonding with them. And also just like feeling like, you know, like they let me bring Sam. They didn't make me bring, there's like a stereotype now that like you see often on TV shows where like the Chinese kid brings in noodles for lunch and everyone in the lunchroom goes, ew, and like runs away. There was never any of that. I always brought like my own bologna sandwich or I like, when I was in high school, I always, they gave me money to, to eat lunch with everyone else. So like that was never the issue. But it was like this thing of like, it was like something I had just in my home that was kind of like this private thing. And I wasn't really like down to share it with others. Although as I got older, you know, and friends did come over, sometimes my mom would make like dumplings and everyone thought it was great. Like everyone was like, this is awesome. But at the same time, like I just really was like, how come on my birthday, we have pie as like my cake, like, because it's because my mom doesn't want to eat cake. So she buys pie because she wants to eat pie. And then it just became a thing of like, I'm not thinking of you. I'm thinking of what I want for myself. And if it was a cake, it was like not a chocolate cake like I wanted. It was a cake that had fruit on it. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff like that. It was just signs that like what I wanted wasn't really important. Ooh, yeah, yeah. I hear that in my some of my clients who I work with. There is that underlying theme sometimes in homes of, you know, what do you want? Kind of like this question, but then that's not really honored, right? Right. It, it turns into, well, you get this because this is what we think is best for you. And then right. that authentic voice starts to disappear in some cases. I don't know if that was the case for you. Yeah, I think it was definitely the case growing up. And then very quickly, you know, as I began to embrace my independence, but also I was becoming a feminist. And I also met my husband very young in college and both of his parents were therapists. And so like, and he's not, (laughs) and he's not Asian, he's Jewish. And so like, it was just this like almost, I wouldn't say culture shock, but like this moment of just like, how do I want my life to be? And how do I want my home to look like? Because, you know, I went from my parents' home to college to being pretty much with my husband. Mm -hmm. And making my own decisions was something that 
came to me very young. And I really clung to that as my identity at a pretty young age because I felt confident enough to do that and to shed whatever it had been. And in my recovery has like really, it's been interesting to rediscover so many of those foods from my childhood that I like sort of, I would I didn't shun them, but I just wasn't really interested in them. I mean, we can get into this if you want now, but when food kind of became my career, it was interesting because definitely the way for me to forge my own path in the food world was by embracing my Asian American heritage. Mm. So what was that like for you as someone who went forward with food as your career, embracing the heritage and also having that, you know, learning to make your own choices? And did you enjoy embracing that heritage or was that something that was new to you? It was definitely enjoyable, but I would also say it was tinged with a little bit resentment just because I'm Asian. I have to teach the public about Asian foods. Like, I don't know about a lot of Asian foods. Like, Japanese food is <laughs> as foreign to me as, like, being able to as anyone else, like, from the South, teaching about Japanese food. Like, I didn't grow up with it. So, like, to be considered an expert merely by the way and the color of my skin or, you know, like, the way I look was really something that, like, again, pissed me off. This anger piece keeps coming off. <laughs> but also at the same time, it was giving me opportunities. I'll explain that like when I was acting for the first few years of my career, the eating disorder manifested. And part of what was the healing journey for me was starting a blog called The Actor's Diet. And because of that blog, it opened up this world of, you know, it was when social media was so young and it was before people shared themselves. And at that point, this was when actors were not encouraged to show any of their personal lives, like, or show any of their personal faults or anything because you wanted to stay an actor. You wanted to be like this blank slate and you didn't want to like interact with your audience. And you certainly didn't want to tell them you had problems. And so it was a risk for me to start blogging. And these were like the very early days of blogs when things felt very safe and like a, a community. There were really very few trolls back then. So, you know, it was an innocent time for me. And um, part of that was, it, it was an opening up of an audience and opportunities like being able to do food videos and pitch shows to to food network and travel channel and things that like were coming so easily quote unquote easily in comparison to acting which mm -hmm. was like still so difficult and so like much rejection and took so much time too you know like there was something very satisfying about being like this is what i ate this morning posting it like that night and then having like, you know, 20 people like comment being like, oh, this is great. I'm going to make this today. You know, like it just felt like an immediate like, ah, uh, like that, that dopamine hit, like that satisfaction of feeling like what I needed to feel or wanted to feel as an actor that I had zero control over. And so, yeah, when food became my career at a certain point, it definitely was like this thing of like, as it became time to monetize and trying to brand myself and all these other things that no longer were about recovery or about having fun, but about how to make a living. I definitely was like, this is cool on the one hand. Like I even did branded videos with my mom, you know, awesome. and <laughs> express and stuff like that, which was a lot of fun. And people really enjoyed her. And I still like love that, like, there's a recipe we made of my dad's pork chops from Taiwan that like still like if you Google or YouTube Chinese pork chops, there I am, you know, and like there's something really wonderful about that. But I, I'd be lying if I didn't say like it didn't make me feel a little bit uncomfortable, you know, like I don't feel like I'm the ambassador for Chinese food by any means. Right. And, and but that's I had to pitch myself, you know, like, yeah. 
I'm your go-to girl when it comes to this. The same way, like, I don't feel comfortable really being like a go-to girl to talk about eating disorders either. You know, like it's such a personal thing and it's such a personal journey. But at the same time, these are the things that I'm passionate about. And these are the things that I have found myself gravitating towards for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So there is, I wouldn't call it a love-hate relationship, but it's complicated. Definitely complicated. I appreciate your honesty because there's so much complexity in your story and your career and, you know, having these opportunities unfold, but also feeling a little uncomfortable with being that representative for all of Asian American culture. I I could see that being a little uncomfortable. Having an eating disorder and making your career around food would probably be pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) One might say that, but at the same time, it was such a, Here's the thing, like the whole recovery phase for me was a very long journey. And I don't think a traditional one, not that I've talked to every single person who's had an eating disorder, but I'd say that like most people did not recover from their eating disorder by starting a food blog (laughs) and going on TV and like on shows where like literally your job is to eat an entire day's worth of sugar and talk about it and be happy about it. Like, that's not what most people do when they're trying to be in recovery. But yes, that was my journey. That was like how it was for me. And I'm actually, I'm really grateful for it. Mm -hmm. Now, being on the other side also, I've since developed celiac. That was like another twist and turn for me in my food journey of like going from binging to dieting to anti-diet to recovery to eating every food under the sun to being so restricted. And then having the pandemic, like, of course, like anyone with any (laughs) issues whatsoever around food is like, has their own other story. I feel like that, like that came out of that. So it's an ever-changing journey and an ever-changing story. And, you know, that binger inside of me, definitely, like, I will always see them poking through of like, is it time? (laughs) And just sort of, I think so much time has passed now at this point that I'm not afraid anymore. Whereas like when it was so fresh and still so new, I felt like overwhelmed by it. And now I have proof that I have, 15 years of like being able to deal with this. So like, I'm not afraid, Mm -hmm. but when I was in the thick of it and it was happening like twice a week, once a week, once a month, it definitely felt very out of control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that perspective though, of just recognizing you have the tools to handle this. If that binger comes out again, right. And you actually have the courage and the evidence that you can get through it or heal your relationship with food if that were to come back, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's really helpful for the listeners to hear too. Just knowing perspective changes over time. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I remember like yesterday what it felt like to be in it. Mm. I remember it. So another question I have for you is, how did your recovery look? I know you mentioned there was that non-traditional path, which by the way, I relate to that a little bit because I took a steakhouse job during my recovery and they asked me to taste the entire menu for <laughs> training. <laughs> so I was like, wow, this is a way to face all of my eating disorder fears, right? So it's funny, I have a very small way of relating to you, like kind of faking it till you make it in order like doing what you need to do with food during the recovery process. So did you go to treatment or did you seek therapy or have a dietitian? Like what did the recovery logistics look like for you? I had a main eating disorders specialist that I saw for years, like that I found actually by Googling, I think at the time NIDA, the National Eating Disorders Association had like a search bar where you could type in where you were and they just showed eating disorder specialists. What's ironic is that I remember when I went to the site to look, I saw Jamie Lynn Siegler, who is an actress and she was a spokesperson for NIDA. And 
I remember thinking to myself as an actress, also like, you know, Sopranos, the show she was on and I'm from New Jersey. I just remember looking at her and thinking to myself like, wow, I will never do that. I will never be vocal about my eating disorder. Like good for her, but like never. And then flash forward years later and I became a spokesperson for the National Eating Disorders (laughs) Association. So you never know. So that's how I found my first eating disorders specialist someone who actually specialized in eating disorders. And I saw her for many years, probably five years, I feel like, or four years I saw her. And it was one-on-one. And I never saw like a specific nutritionist, but my best friend, Christy, who actually founded the blog with me, is a holistic health counselor. And so she was always keeping an eye sort of on the nutritional aspects of things. But when I was in therapy for the first few years, I just remember feeling like this is not working. This is not working. She's giving me all these tips, all these tools, all these books, all these podcasts. No, there weren't that many podcasts, but all these interviews, like these things to listen to, these docs to watch. And I'm doing it all and it's not working. I did hypnotherapy, you know, like I was just like, this isn't working because like I could feel the angry binger inside of me just being like, not working, (laughs) not working, give up. And I'd say like the biggest moment for me was there was a part of me that because it sort of really came to head when I started acting, I always like kind of blamed the acting career for it. I saw like a direct correlation in the form that when I had lost a ton of weight to play a ballet dancer in my the first movie I had ever done. And it was it's still a movie I'm known for because it's sort of a cult classic in the Asian and lesbian community called Saving Face that I did in 2005. And, you know, like, how cliche is that? Actress <laughs> loses weight to play ballet dancer and develops an eating disorder. You know, like, it just was so sad to me that <laughs> that was the truth. But it was the truth. But part of the truth, it wasn't that I was anorexic. It was that I was still binging and that I couldn't come to peace with it. You know, like I, I hated that. Like I felt like I still needed that. It was like a release valve for me. Mm -hmm. And I hated that I didn't feel like I could turn to other ways of coping ways that I use now, like meditation or take a hike or like talk to a friend, like all of these things that I use now on a regular basis. Back then, it just, it wouldn't quote unquote work. Mm -hmm. And inevitably I would just binge again and then the cycle would continue. And I'd say the biggest thing for me was when I was trying to get pregnant. I was in my early thirties and I was just thinking to myself, I do not want to be the pregnant woman who like rubs her belly and says like, I can eat whatever I want now, but once this baby comes, that's when I'm going to quote unquote be good. I didn't want like that kind of language in my head. I didn't want that to be the case, especially I didn't want to pass my insecurities about my body. So I was sort of just like, all right, I'm trying to get pregnant. I just like really want to be at peace with this body and like, if I'm going to eat what I want to eat, it really always frustrated me that like, I actually really do enjoy things like salads and a handful of nuts and a lean protein and, and all these, like, I actually really enjoy these foods that everyone's like, about sometimes like traditionally, but like, I actually really enjoy it. The problem was I couldn't stop eating it. So like, I couldn't even have hummus in my house because I would eat the entire container plus like a huge bag of carrots in like, one sitting and then just feel sick and then just be like, well, let's have the cake. Let's have to be like, let's just do it, you know? And so like, it was, it was almost like, I said to myself, like, listen, I just want to stock my house with, with the foods that I want to be eating. And if I gain weight, I gain weight. Fine. It'll be okay. Like wherever my body ends up, it'll be okay. And initially, you know, I wasn't used to having things like cereal in my house, hummus, like nuts, 
peanut peanut butter. It was not just a spoonful of peanut butter. It was always like half the jar of peanut butter in one sitting. And I just had to trust, like, this is going to figure itself out at some point. And what ended up happening was, yes, I did gain weight. And no, I did not get pregnant. And as I kept gaining weight and not getting pregnant, people started saying things to me like, oh my God, I think you're pregnant. Like, I can't believe someone said that to me once, (laughs) but like, wow, because they knew I was trying and like, they're like, oh my God, I think I know. Like, and yeah. And as that was happening, this also came during a time when I was sort of on a hiatus from acting. Both of my agent and my manager had dropped me. And so I was at a very low point, you know, like where I just was like, I could try to go back to acting, but let me just like take a break from this career that has so much focus on how I look. Let me just see what this is like. So the pressure to look a certain way was totally off the table. And I was trying to get pregnant. So I was trying to do this for a purpose, but it wasn't happening. And over the next two years, that's when I started blogging. That's when I started The Actor's Diet. And that's also when I was in my infertility journey during that time of like really trying to get pregnant. I ended up seeing endocrinologists. I went to reproductive health centers. It was a lot, you know? And in the end, it was unexplained why I couldn't get pregnant. I very much wanted to have a baby. My husband and I very much wanted to be parents, but it was not happening. And I was getting closer and closer to the age of 35 where IVF rates would double and we did not have any insurance that would cover that. And I don't know. I think the combination of these really like hard things to hear, you can't have a baby, you can't have the career you want, and you're not comfortable in your body. However, I just had to be okay with it. Like at this point, I was just like, I'm not going back. At this point, I wasn't binging anymore. You know, I was eating pretty intuitively, but I still didn't, I didn't love my life. You know, like I was just really, really unhappy with, with everything. And it wasn't until like, I just really was like gentle with myself, you know, of just like, okay, it's okay. It's okay that you look this way. It's okay that you'll look in the mirror and love your body. It's okay that you can't get pregnant. It's okay that like your career is nowhere where you want it to be. Like, it's okay. And like, I'm not going to punish you. In fact, like, what do you need? What do you want? Oh, you want a massage every week? All right, we're going to massage. You want a journal? Okay, we're going to get you. I'm just like, you're going to get a nice journal. You want a new outfit? We're going to go get you a new outfit. And like, I'm like tearing up because I still treat myself this way to this day. Like I am unapologetically kind to myself because I know what it feels like the other way. And that just like does not sit well with me. It's probably why the binger hasn't come back because like she's so distracted (laughs) (laughs) with all like these toys and like nice things that I give her. And like, yeah, like that was like a big moment for me. And then my father passed away around the same time. So like, I think the huge dump (laughs) that I felt like life took on me was I had a choice to make. I could either continue being like, woe is me and like punish myself for it. Or I could just sort of accept it and like continue being kind to myself. And I chose the latter. And that's, sort of what I've done ever since. And there's been definitely more dumps (laughs) that have been taken on me in the last 15 years. But there's also been incredible, like insane jumps of just achievements and things that I'm just so crazy grateful for that, yeah, this is the new normal, right? Mm. This is what it is. And so... Yeah, that's part of why, like, I just don't feel that fear anymore because it's almost like I feel like the worst that could happen happened to me. And not only, not only did I get through it, but I'm proud of how I got through it. Mm. Wow, that's 
such a beautiful story of resilience and growth, you know, just hearing that development of your inner voice and how it changed from being this hateful voice to this loving, generous, compassionate voice. I would say I completely relate to that. And I think the shifting of the inner voice is one of the greatest gifts I received from my own recovery journey as well. I love hearing that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It, It was just, I feel like everyone here listening, it's like sometimes you never think you're going to have that kind, sweet voice, right? That compassion. How are you ever going to get it? And recovery can really help you get there whether you want it or not, right? Wow. So after learning all about you and hearing that story, what would you say are some of the greatest lessons you've taken away over the past 15 years and transforming into the woman you've become? Probably the most important lesson is that I I understand that this is an ever-changing journey and relationship, which is why when I got my celiac diagnosis and when I found out that I was no longer going to be doing food as a way of making a living any longer. And then when the pandemic hit and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have to eat oatmeal every single meal. (laughs) (laughs) because I'm too scared to go to the grocery store or go out to eat and not judging myself for it. Like not looking at the behavior, like it's similar to when I first had my first couple of Thanksgivings after I was recovered or I had considered myself recovered and being like, God, this looks like a binge. Me sitting down at Thanksgiving, this looks like a binge. I'm about to eat like (laughs) a binge, a binge day. But it's similar to like, oh, when the pandemic hit and I was like, I only feel safe eating oatmeal like six Mm -hmm. times a day. That this feels like disordered eating. This looks very disordered. What I've found is that I know the truth and I know what it looks like is very different than what it feels like. And I know when I've had enough and I know what is right for me in a certain moment, I know that it's, I wouldn't call it a phase, but like, it's not, it's just not something I worry about anymore. There was like a part of me that was just like, this is what we're doing right now. Because what I feel like is like, we're treading water and it's not time to like, go diving when we're treading. Like, it's just not time right now. So like, let's just focus on what we're doing right now. We're trying to stay afloat. So when those times come where I feel like I'm judging myself or that other people could be judging me also, like everyone knows, everyone knows that I've I've had eating issues. So like when they like see me at a party, like hoovering down (laughs) a platter, like, they may get very concerned, but that's just not part of the conversation anymore because I'm just very conscious now of like when I am quote unquote hoovering down a thing of hors d'oeuvres, it's most likely because I haven't eaten and I really want to enjoy that moment because honestly, like it's not like I made binging my enemy. There is times when I will binge And it's actually like, for lack of a better word, fun. It's an old friend that I'm like reacquainting myself with. However, the power that that holds over me is just no longer there. Like, it's almost just like, hey, how you doing? All right. Nice (laughs) to see you. And then like moving on. And then, you know, again, like the next day, maybe I have indigestion and I'm like, oh, not going to see that friend for a while again, but like, it's not like it holds this power. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the most important thing for me is because what it is that prolongs it and keeps the cycle going is the guilt and the shame that surrounds the behavior and the judging. 
whether it's from others, which it usually isn't, by the way, and or or it's the self-judgment that I have over it. And it's sort of just taking that judgment and that shame and that guilt out of the equation and allowing the behavior to be what it's going to be. Now, if the behavior, like if it's going to be a problem, I'm going to know it's a problem. And I will also trust myself that I will deal with it and I will get help. But it hasn't been the case. And I mean, I'm still in therapy. I don't see an eating disorder specialist anymore. But, you know, if I feel like something is happening, I might bring it up every now and then just so that I can like get it off my chest. But yeah, that has been the number one thing mm. is, is just like knowing this is not over. But just because it's not over doesn't mean that like it has to completely take me down again. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, and I'm knocking on wood, but luckily it has not been anything more than a day if it's come up. And usually all I have to do is say it out loud, say out loud to my husband or to a friend, like, I, not even that I'm worried, like, but that this happened, I want to keep an eye on it. Can I keep an eye on it with you? Mm-hmm. And they say, yeah. And they trust that if I do bring it up again, I will bring it up again. But otherwise, like, kind of done. It's just like out there. And that's that, that I find to be enough. That and also no one can fix you. Like, no one can fix you. My husband really tried. He really tried. (laughs) Wow, thank you for that. It sounds like you were able to reclaim your power around food, right? And trust yourself completely around food to the point where you could relax. And your behaviors don't turn into this distressing experience. Like, yeah, you're going to have a day where you feel like you ate the quantity of a binge, but the shame doesn't follow. The self-hatred doesn't follow. And that does feel so much more empowering than the cycle you used to be stuck in. So I love that. And also that last part about people can't fix you. What's your final note you want to add to that lesson? Because I feel like I want to complete that a little bit. What did you learn? I assume you learned only I can fix or heal myself. And what finally brought you to that realization? I think it's because, you know, I'm very close with my husband. As I said, that we've been together over two decades and a he like just wanted to help, you know? So he was just like, whatever I can do, if you want to go to this restaurant, if you want me to rub your back, if you feel like you've eaten too much, like, like, what do you need me to do to help you to help stop? Like, if you need me to remove you from this situation, like I can do this. And I think there was something like very romantic and like, ah, like my night or whatever about this. But at the same time, like it wasn't helping. It really wasn't. In fact, like he'd rub my back and I'd be like, get the fuck off me. <laughs> let me, let me, let me escape. <laughs> like, like once I was there, I was there, you know? And I think not only that, but, you know, my, my mom was always such a trigger for me being around her. And it's interesting. She has stopped saying things about food and weight around me for the most part but she'll do it about her grandkids still. She just like cannot help herself. Wow. And she knows not to do it with me because she knew what happened with me. But yet she like, she's just like, oh, that was Lynn's thing. And she doesn't understand that the cycle continues. And so I think in the same way that I'm like, no one can fix you. It's also like, I'm not going to blame her for my eating disorder. So like, no one can break you and no one can fix you. You know, like those were two of the big things for me. So like, even now when my mom still says these things about like, like she'll mutter in Chinese about someone gaining weight, I will, I mean, for the most, honestly, usually what I'll say is like, I don't want to hear it, which is the truth. 
and then kind of end up like if I say I don't want to hear it, that's it. But I'm not angry about it. I'm not pissed about it. I'm not gonna like take that and be like, she still hasn't learned her lesson. <laughs> like and then take it out on the plate of cookies or or not eat the cookies because of it, you know? Like it's just mm. it is what it is. That's her thing. The end. And this is my thing. And so no one is going to fix it and no one's going to hurt it. And I think that's just sort of how I see it. Mm -hmm. That's a really helpful reminder. And I know it's so hard not to take those family comments personal and want to teach them their lessons and have them see the light, right? It's so tempting. Like, just don't you get it? Like, come on. No, they don't. (laughs) don't. And (laughs) And then you're like, Ah, and then you have, it's like a whole cycle of emotions. And then you finally land on, this might not be their lesson to learn in this lifetime. And, you know, I don't have to be a part of it. So, yeah. Well, Lynn, this has been so beautiful. I love your story. I love how open and honest you are. I'm really curious to know, and it doesn't have to be food related, recovery related, but what's next for you as far as like, your career goes and are you doing acting, writing? Are you planning on doing more advocacy work? What would you like? Um, Yes, all of it. I, um, it's interesting. I'm sort of at this, in this waiting period right now, I'm, I've since transitioned into becoming a writer and a director. I'm still acting full-time, but I'm, but I've also become a writer and director of narrative things. I had done a feature film, I Will Make You Mine, that's currently streaming everywhere that came out in 2020. And I directed a short this year, this past year, that waiting to see what the festival gods, if they'll be kind to us or not. <laughs> so that will determine my my sort of my travel schedule. I'm always writing, always creating. I'm pitching like a few things right now and I'm always auditioning. But that said, I am right now in the beginning phases of starting to think about writing. (laughs) So like not even writing, but think about writing a book centered around one of the blogs that I helped found called Thick Dumpling Skin, specifically about Asian Americans and eating disorders and how it relates to the culture. And so that is something I hope the next time we talk, it will be because my book, our book is coming out uh, and that will be, you know, completely focused around this whole conversation we've just been having. And it'll be interesting to like dive really deep into that. But I finally feel like I'm ready to. Oh, I love hearing that. And you are welcome back. Anytime, just let me know when you're ready to talk about your next book, because I think this community would love to read your story, even on a more deeper way than we covered in this podcast. So that's so exciting. And yeah, I'm sure everyone listening is going to also be checking out some of your previous projects as well. So thank you. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Yes, it was. Oh, yeah. I love a good, fun interview. So, (laughs) all right. I'm going to turn this off now. (laughs) 